You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Death as Metamorphosis of Life, Seven Lectures, held in various cities from November 29, 1917 to October 16, 1918. Lecture 1. The Three Realms of the Dead. Life Between Death and Rebirth, given in Bern, November 29, 1917. Today I would like to continue with our reflections from a previous talk, because they are in line with what I am convinced we must now talk about among ourselves. For just as I believe that our difficult times demand that in our public anthroposophical lectures certain things must now be said, things people really need to hear now, so I also am convinced that the time has come for us to talk among ourselves about certain truths of spiritual science. As you may remember, in that previous lecture I talked about how souls who had crossed the threshold of death are still active in life on earth. We talked then about how the impulses of the so-called dead continue to live on in what people accomplish here on earth and how the forces of the so-called dead are connected to those of the living. Today I would like to add some reflections that are intimately connected with this topic. First of all, the terms and images we use when speaking about this life between death and rebirth are necessarily based on our sensory physical life here on earth and on the ideas we develop in this life. However, life in the realm of the dead is such that those terms and concepts cannot really do justice to it. Therefore, it is best to approach the life between death and rebirth from various angles. Just before the outbreak of the current war, I made an attempt along those lines in my Vienna lectures when I talked about the life between death and rebirth as it relates to the inner forces of the soul. Today I want to point out, above all, that what is in a sense the most important part of life for us here on earth, and indeed must be all-important for us, is completely absent from the experience of the souls that have passed through the portal of death. Just think how many of our ideas and concepts come to us from the realms of minerals and plants. These include also all those ideas, impressions and perceptions that come to us from the heavens. The starry sky above us, sun and moon are all part of what I call the mineral realm of nature and allow us to perceive physical images as perceptions while we are alive on earth. Both the mineral realm and most of the realm of plants, but please note I say most of, uh, 
are absent from what souls experience in the period between death and rebirth. Indeed, what is unique and typical of the experiences of the so-called dead is that their relationship to and awareness of those two realms is very different from ours. As we have said before, it is an illusion to assume that plants and animals feel no pain and are insensate. Our actions have an impact on minerals and also on plants. And to some extent we are right to say that this is not the kind of impact that leads to pain or pleasure, sorrow or joy. However, we know that when we quarry stones, for example, certain elemental beings do indeed experience pain or pleasure. But this fact is not part of our ordinary everyday consciousness. That is why in our ordinary experience we can say that when we quarry stone or do anything else in the mineral realm and in most of the plant realm, we do not cause pleasure or pain to the world around us. However, that is not what we find in the realm we enter after passing through the portal of death. There we must realize, above all, that even the smallest thing we do, we have no choice but to use the words of our earthly language, unfortunately, even simply touching something is connected with pleasure or pain and arouses sympathy or antipathy. In other words, in that realm of the dead you cannot even gently touch anything without arousing a sensation of pleasure or pain in what you are touching and calling forth sympathies or antipathies. I have already indicated this briefly in my book titled Theosophy. When I described the realm of the soul and explained that sympathy and antipathy are the most important forces of the soul in that realm. That insight has to become a living part of our thinking. As our awareness grows out, excuse me, as our awareness grows of how the realms of the dead and that of the so-called living work together, we must develop a sense for how to understand the way the dead handle things in their realm. And the dead are guided in all their activities by the awareness that they are evoking sympathy or antipathy, suffering or joy, that everything they do gives rise to a response of living sensation. Indeed, beyond the threshold of death there is nothing at all that we could call insensate, in the sense we apply the term to our mineral and plant kingdoms. The above describes the lowest realm we enter when we cross the threshold of death. Just as at birth on earth we enter the lowest kingdom of the physical world, namely that of the minerals, so upon death we enter a spiritual realm of general sensitivity, where everything is capable of sensation and feeling, where sympathy and antipathy reign. This is the realm in which the dead develop their powers and are active, and that is why when thinking of the activities of the dead, we must always keep in mind that all their activities continuously send out forces bearing sensations 
as well as sympathies and antipathies. What is the meaning and purpose of these sensation-bearing forces in the context of the cosmos as a whole? You see, this is an issue that only spiritual science can fully address here on earth. And you will realize how vitally important this issue is when you consider all its implications. We are living in eventful days. At the same time, people more and more insist on accepting only those explanations of the world that can be verified in the physical world, with the result that many give up in the face of current events and abandon the search for explanations entirely. Nowadays, people often give up looking for an explanation regarding the principle of development of the animals sharing the earth with us. Just think of all that has recently been done to support what is known as the theory of evolution. With some justification, people assume that animals have developed from undifferentiated simple forms to more differentiated or complex ones. It would be more correct to say that animals have developed from undifferentiated creatures to ever more differentiated and complex ones, including human beings, insofar as they are physical beings. By and large, the theory of evolution has entered popular awareness, and in a sense it has become part of humanity's secular religion. The traditional religions, in all their various denominations, are trying hard to accommodate and integrate the theory of evolution. At least as far as their leading representatives are concerned, these religions no longer have the courage they still had a short while ago, namely to speak out against the theory of evolution. They have accepted it, more or less, and are coming to terms with it. We, however, have to ask what is actually at work in the evolution of animals, in the development of more differentiated organisms from undifferentiated ones? What do we perceive in everything in the animal kingdom, not just in its evolution, but in its being, its existence? Now people may think this strange and incredible, but what we find when we enter into the world of the dead through awakened imaginative consciousness, is that what governs most of the animal kingdom are forces coming from the dead. In other words, we humans are called upon to participate in ruling the impulses working in the cosmos. Regarding the mineral realm, what we do through our technology and machines and manufacturing, in accordance with the laws of this realm, is sufficient. Likewise, regarding the kingdom of the plants, what we cultivate and grow as gardeners and planters is enough. That is, in these realms we play no part, excuse, no more than a secondary role in the time between birth and death. However, concerning the realm that is mirrored here on earth in the animal's existence, we are involved immediately upon our death when we develop powers and enter the field of forces that govern the animal kingdom. That is the region in which we are active after death. 
In a certain sense, this is for us then just as much the basis and foundation of our activity as the mineral kingdom is now while we are living here on earth. That is the foundation on which we stand after death. Just as here on earth the plant kingdom rests on the foundation of the mineral realm, so after death a second and different realm is supported by the first one of surging sympathies and antipathies which continue to work in the animal kingdom here on earth. Now, in this second region, the dead no longer feel only pleasure and suffering and no longer send forth only impulses triggered by sensations and feelings which then go on working. Instead, this second realm, which rests upon the previous one, essentially works on what we call boosting and weakening the willpower of the dead. To understand those powers of will correctly, you'll have to read the Vienna lectures I mentioned above. There I described how the human soul's willpower between death and rebirth is different from what we call willpower here in our physical life. Nevertheless, we can call it will, even though that different will there is interlaced with feelings and another element that does not exist here on earth. After death, this will this will constantly surges and then ebbs away again. In our interactions with the dead, we experience their inner life in such a way that at one moment we sense that their will impulses are strengthened and they feel stronger in themselves. However, in the next moment their will is ebbing away and practically becomes dormant. This is how the will of the dead constantly moves between ebb and flow, first becoming stronger and then weakening again. And this fluctuating movement of the will makes up a large and important part, indeed an essential part, of the life of the dead. However, this ebb and flow in the will not only affects the basis of the realm of the dead, it also streams into our human sphere here on earth, not into the thoughts of our ordinary consciousness, but into what we experience as impulses of willing and of feeling. I'll have more to say about this in tomorrow's public lecture. After all, one of the strange things about our experience as physical human beings is that in our ordinary consciousness we are fully aware only of our sensory perceptions and our thoughts. Our waking consciousness is limited to those perceptions and thoughts. We experience our feelings as though we were dreaming them, and we pretty much sleep through and miss what is happening in our will. We are very familiar with our thoughts, but we have no idea of what happens when we simply lift our hand, that is, when our will affects our body. And while the activity of our feelings is to some extent part of our awareness, at least somewhat more so than that of the will, even what is going on with our feelings, by and large, still remains dark to us, much like the images we see in our dreams. 
our passions and feelings, these we experience only as though in a dream. The light of our waking consciousness does not shine on them as it does on our thinking and sensory perceptions, and it does even less so on our will. Now, it is in that part of our daily life that we experience as sleep and dream that the dead share our life. That is, the dead live with souls still incarnated on earth in a physical body, much as we here live with the plant world, except that we are not closely connected with the plant world, but the dead have a very close connection to our feelings and passions and will impulses. That is where they go on living. This is the second realm of the dead. As we develop and experience emotions and sensations here in our human life, the soul of the dead continues to live on in them in such a way that the fluctuating movement I described, the ebb and flow of the will, that is the waxing and waning of the will of the dead, in a sense becomes one with what we experience here on earth as though in a dream or in sleep, namely with our feelings and will impulses. From this you can tell how closely connected the realm of the dead is to our earthly sphere, There is really no big separation between them. As I've explained, the dead normally have nothing to do with the realms of the minerals and plants. There are exceptions, however, however, which I will talk about later. The dead are very active, though, in regard to the animal kingdom, which is, in a sense, the basis for their existence. Moreover, the dead are very much involved in the sphere of human feeling and willing, a sphere in which we are not at all separated from the dead. In other words, after crossing the threshold of death, by experiencing the ebb and flow of the will, the dead can continue to share the life of those still incarnated in a physical body, but not of just anyone. Rather, according to a certain law, the dead can continue to live on only with persons to whom they have a karmic connection. This means that the dead do not even perceive people who are not part of their karma. Such persons practically do not exist for the dead. The experience and perception of the dead is limited by the karma that they have started to build in their life here on earth. They do not even notice any living persons who are not part of this karma. However, the world of the dead includes not only the souls still incarnated here on earth, but also those who have already passed through the portal of death. Thus, this second sphere of the dead includes all karmic relationships, both the ones the person formed with those still on earth and those he or she had with souls who have already passed through the portal of death. This second sphere rests upon one that all the dead share in common, a realm of animal existence. But we should not think here of animals as we know them on earth. As I've emphasized before, the earthly animals actually reflect what exists in the spiritual world, 
namely the soul of each animal's genus. That is, regarding the dead, we have to think more of the animal's spirituality, for on this shared basis I've described, there rests for each dead soul an individual karmic sphere, nothing like what we have here on earth. After all, we all enter into very different relationships in life, and no two are alike. And after death, we find in the realm of the dead only those aspects and people with whom we have entered into karmic connections. A second law also applies to this realm, the law that reveals what this second sphere of the dead is made of and how it is organized. Initially what works on the dead and either boosts or weakens the willpower is limited essentially to the person's most recent life on earth, or perhaps even only to parts of that life. At first the dead share very intensively only in the life of those they were very close to, but gradually they also continue to participate in the life of others they have begun karmic relationships with. Of course this process is faster for some than for others. It varies with the individual, and the course of each person's earthly life does not tell us anything about how things will go after death. For example, we may be surprised that certain persons or souls are part of a dead person's circle of connections because we have drawn the wrong conclusions based on physical life, which is all too easy to do. Nevertheless, the basic law applies. The circle of the dead soul's connections gradually widens. The dead settle into the life within their circle much as I have described it in the above-mentioned lectures about life between death and rebirth. As I explained there, in this realm of the dead, the will impulses begin to spread wider and wider. They live within the dead soul much like our ideas and perceptions live within us during life. It is these will impulses that give the dead their knowledge and consciousness. Generally people are so focused on their earthly life that it is very hard to convince them that the dead know things primarily through their will, just as we know things based on our perceptions and concepts. Naturally this makes communication between the living and dead more difficult. We can say that this second realm of life after death expands more and more. Later, but this later is always relative, as it happens sooner for some than for others, the circle of connections widens to include not only direct immediate karmic relationships, but also to but also the indirect, more distant ones. What I mean by this is that once a dead soul has spent a certain amount of time in the realm between death and rebirth, the horizon of his or her experience expands and includes now also those souls, whether they are still on earth or have also crossed the threshold of death, with whom the deceased had a close and direct karmic bond. Of course, 
those souls in turn have their own karmic relationships that are not necessarily also shared by the first deceased I mentioned. In other words, person A has a karmic bond with person B, but not with person C. In the realm of the dead, we can then see person A's experience widens to include person B, and they share life, as I've described. Eventually, person B becomes the bridge, so to speak, connecting person A to person C. That is, in other words, A has no direct connection to C, but develops an indirect one by way of B's direct karmic connection to C. In the process, this second realm after death grows and expands. This is a very slow process, but ultimately this realm comprises a very large area. In a sense, our inner experience, our inner world, is continually being enriched by such experiences that strengthen or weaken the will, that lead us into the life of the dead or living souls whose realm we share once we ourselves have crossed the threshold of death. Clearly a large part of life between between death and rebirth consists in always making new acquaintances, if I may put it so colloquially. Just as in this life we are always gaining experience and learning more about the world around us, so after death we increasingly experience the existence of other souls in such a way that we know some things in those souls strengthen our will while other things weaken it. This experience of our will alternately growing stronger and weaker makes up an essential part of life after death. As you can see, this has far-reaching implications for all of life, for the existence of the whole cosmos. It shows that we are linked not just by the vague and hazy bond of unity the pantheists and mystics have been raving and dreaming about. Rather, in a very real sense, between death and rebirth, we are forming connections, spiritual acquaintanceships with large numbers of people from all over the world. Clearly, then, in our experiences between death and rebirth, we're not all that different and not all that far removed from people on earth, and the connection uniting the living and the dead is not just some abstraction, but a very real, concrete bond. Here on earth the animal kingdom is the third kingdom, resting on the lower realms of the minerals and the plants. And likewise, after death, we find a third realm, above the two I've described. This is the sphere of certain hierarchies, of beings that never incarnate on earth, but with whom we become connected between death and rebirth. Indeed, this realm of hierarchies is the one that gives our experience of our capital I between death and rebirth its vivid intensity. In the first two realms we experience, quote-unquote, the other. But in the third realm, we experience ourselves through the hierarchies. And this already shows us that after death we experience ourselves as spiritual beings amidst the hierarchies, as their children, 
their sons and daughters. That is, we are aware of our connection to other human souls, as I have described, and we also feel ourselves to be children of the hierarchies. Here on earth, knowing ourselves and our place in the cosmos means feeling ourselves at the convergence of the external cosmic forces around us. After death we feel ourselves to be spiritual beings composed of, and if I may put it this way, organized by the joint and interdependent efforts of the various hierarchies. Now, we usually consider ourselves the pinnacle of the kingdoms of nature. Of course, this is no reason for arrogance or pride. When we pass through the portal of death, we find ourselves in the lowest of the kingdoms of hierarchies, and yet as standing in the confluence of their impulses. Only these impulses emanate from above, while here on earth the stream of impulses flows toward us from below. Just as here our capital I is embedded in our physical body and is thus an extract of the rest of nature, so after death our spirituality is immersed in the hierarchies and is an extract of the hierarchies. In other words, after death, we are clothed in our spirituality, much as here our body is the vestment we put on when we pass through the portal of death. Thanks to imaginative cognition, we can get an idea of the basic organization of life between death and rebirth. And it would be very sad indeed if we could not do that, after all, where our feelings and will are concerned, we are not at all separated from the realm of the dead. What we do not see or experience firsthand in this regard is merely not accessible to our sensory perception and our thinking. We will make tremendous progress for our future development here on earth, a huge step forward, for the time humanity will continue to live on this earth, once we become fully conscious of the fact that in our impulses of feeling and willing we are united with the dead. Once we have fully integrated this realization into our awareness, we will never doubt that death can rob us of nothing more than the physical perception of those who have passed away. In reality, in all our feeling and willing, the dead are always present with us. Earlier I mentioned exceptions regarding the mineral and plant kingdoms, and they apply particularly in our era, in our time. They did not exist in earlier epochs, but we do not have to go into that now. Now, in our time, a certain materialist worldview has inevitably spread everywhere, and thus people easily neglect to develop any spiritual ideas during their life on earth. As I pointed out even in yesterday's public lecture, when people fail to develop spiritual ideas during their life on earth, they bind themselves very tightly to this earthly life as though with a spell. As a result, they cannot leave it behind, 
and after death become a focus for destructive forces. Many of the destructive forces at work in the earthly sphere originate from such souls caught and stuck in the earthly sphere as though by a spell. We should not judge such human souls, but rather have compassion for them. For after death it is hard to feel that one must remain in a realm that is not appropriate or adequate to the dead. And in this case the kingdom these dead get stuck in is that of minerals and plants, and includes also the mineral kingdom both animals and humans bear within their bodies. Indeed the mineral kingdom permeates all these beings. Now, people who have not developed any spiritual ideas after death often shy away from the life where everything they do evokes emotions and sensations. They cannot enter the realm that is at work in animal spirituality and in the human sphere, but can enter only what is of a mineral or plant nature. I can't tell you in more detail what happens there, because first our language really has no adequate words for this, and second what is at the bottom of all this must be approached slowly and gradually, because it appears terrifying at first sight. Still, don't think that these dead souls then completely escape the life between death and rebirth that I've described. Rather, they merely approach it with a certain shyness or timidity, with a certain trepidation, and repeatedly fall back into the realm of minerals and plants, because they have chosen to develop primarily ideas and concepts that have a certain significance for that latter realm, the realm of the dead, of the physical mechanism. As I see it, my primary mission these days is to make people aware again, with the help of such ideas and images, that the dead are working and contributing to human development. I would like to present such things even in my public talks, but I cannot do that because people generally are not willing or ready to accept such ideas. They cannot accept them largely because they have not had the benefit of what we have shared in our various branches. Nevertheless, to describe the life between death and rebirth and highlight its close connection with our earthly life is to fulfill the the demands of our time, to do what is called for at the present time. For our epoch has long since discarded an old instinctive, excuse me, for our epoch has long since discarded all old instinctive notions regarding the realm of the dead, and consequently we must now develop new ideas. We must leave behind our abstract notions about the higher worlds and do more than just speak of spirituality in a general way. What is needed now is to realize the spirituality that is at work in the world, to realize that the dead have not simply passed away, but continue to live and work with us in the historical process of human development, to realize that the spiritual forces around us are both forces of the higher hierarchies and also those of the dead.
future generations could entertain no worse illusion than the belief that the social circle and social life we develop here on earth based on our emotions and will is created without any help from the dead, and only on the basis of earthly institutions and powers. That would be utterly impossible simply because the dead are already fully involved in our feeling and willing. The all-important question now is how we can properly develop awareness of this close connection to the spiritual world given the impulses of our modern age. After all, in the course of human evolution, our ordinary consciousness in our physical life here on earth has increasingly separated itself from the spiritual world. And to direct our earthly evolution so that we can return as physical beings to the spiritual world, that was the purpose of the mystery of Golgotha. We must not think of the mystery of Golgotha as a one-time unique event, the greatest event in the evolution of the earth. Rather, it is still active, still at work and we are called upon to contribute to keeping this impulse active in the right way. As I have so often emphasized, the mission of our spiritual science is deeply connected with the impulse of Golgotha. In a certain sense, the purpose of spiritual science is to help us properly understand the significance of the impulse of Golgotha for the present and the near future. Now, you can be sure of one thing. The natural sciences, as earthly sciences that also develop into secular religions, will become ever more prevalent. Accordingly, it is utterly foolish to accuse me of being opposed and hostile to the natural sciences, even in their more radical trends. Such prejudiced claims hark back to the most outdated and antiquated way of thinking. Obviously, anyone who understands the course of earthly evolution also knows, without a doubt, that the natural sciences cannot be refuted or disproved. On the contrary, they will continue to proliferate more and more, and the type of religious faith the natural sciences spread over the world cannot be stopped. It is unstoppable and will redound to the good of humanity. And very soon now, possibly in only a few decades, the religious denominations will no longer be able to fight or resist this trend, and the notion of pure nature, developed and cultivated by the natural sciences, will reach everyone, even the most simple and primitive people. That much is already certain. However, something else is certain too, namely, that the more this purely scientific worldview takes hold of people's minds, the less the natural sciences themselves will be able to pursue and cultivate anything spiritual. Consequently, the spiritual must be sought by other means, albeit ones just as rigorously scientific. In other words, the natural sciences will understand one dimension of nature, and life, 
and indeed such knowledge will be increasingly important for the tasks humanity faces in the period between birth and death. However, what can elevate us to the realm of the spirit must come from elsewhere, not from the natural sciences. A basic and far-reaching impulse is already heralded in the way the mystery of Golgotha has been understood up to this time, and especially so in our own epoch. Nowadays, we have to acknowledge that the clergy of the various religious denominations are among the most determined enemies of a true understanding of the Christ impulse. This may sound strange, but the truth is that the way pastors and theologians present the Christ impulse is sure to alienate people from it more and more. Indeed, nowadays the denominations are further from understanding what the Christ impulse really is than ever before. I don't want to go into all the essential points concerning the Christ impulse today. After all, we've already talked about this before and will do so again. Still, I want to emphasize something that is particularly important now in regard to the Christ impulse. We must see it as completely different from any other historical impulse. Essentially, people realize this, but they still get drawn into all sorts of compromises. They settle for half measures and lack the courage to accept the whole truth. What we have to understand is that it is impossible to learn or say anything about the Christ impulse based on the usual methods of history. According to eminent theologians, it's pointless to ask whether the Gospels could be authentic and true in the usual historical sense. According to them, the historical proofs of Christ's existence fill a quarto page at most. That's what eminent theologians say these days. In other words, they are willing to admit that, considered as historical sources, the Gospels are ultimately not reliable. There is no way to prove that they represent historical facts. That's what we have to keep in mind. Even leading theologians thus admit that all the historical evidence we can gather for the Gospels like the historical documents we have about other important figures of history, will fit on a quarto page. The important point here is, however, that even what is written on that quarto page is not true in the usual historical sense. People will have to admit that while there are historical causes and evidence for the existence of Socrates and Julius Caesar, for example, there are none for the existence of Christ Jesus on earth. His life must be understood spiritually. That is indeed the most important and essential fact about him. For, regarding the mystery of Golgotha, we will either fall into agonizing doubt if we want to rely on physical evidence, because there is none, or we will have to understand it in a spiritual way. In regard to everything else, we are free to look for historical evidence, but where the mystery of Golgotha is concerned, 
no historical evidence of any kind will ever be of any use to us. Instead we are forced to approach this mystery not with our usual physical historical methods but with spiritual understanding. If we do not want to understand the mystery of Golgotha based on a spiritual understanding of our earthly development, we will not understand it at all. Thus we can say that it is the will of the gods that the most important event on earth is to compel us to spirituality. We can understand the mystery of Golgotha, which historical evidence can never prove, only if we can rise to a spiritual understanding of the world. Accordingly, spiritual science is the only science that can speak of the reality of the mystery of Golgotha. Everything else is outdated and antiquated, so to speak. For example, the theologian wrote a remarkable book in which he compiles all theories about Jesus of the modern age from Lessing to Vreda, and in the process he proves that we really must overcome history as we know it and move to a new way of understanding this matter. And this new understanding can be found only by way of spiritual science. Let us fully understand this, my dear friends, because the time has now come when people can experience the continuing effect of the mystery of Golgotha only in a spiritual way. That is why I spoke of Christ's spiritual etheric reappearance in the twentieth century and have represented it in my first mystery drama. However, that reappearance will be a spiritual experience, a spiritual clairvoyant experience. As you can see, the mystery of Golgotha is intimately connected with the necessary elevation of humankind to spirituality that is to begin in our time. And as we begin to move up to a certain level of spirituality, we must also realize that we can understand the mystery of Golgotha only spiritually, in a spiritual way. In other words, the Christian faith must now be continued spiritually and not historically. It needs spiritual understanding, not historical research or tradition. But don't take what I've said merely in the abstract sense and believe that you've already done all that's necessary just because you have compiled a few common concepts and notions about the significance of the mystery of Golgotha. Instead, it is essential that you approach this subject concretely. It is not a matter of forming ideas about Christ's life and work, but rather of finding the kingdom of Christ here in our earthly sphere. After all, Christ entered this earthly world, and we must be able to find his kingdom here. As the natural sciences gradually perfect themselves, they will show us a picture of the world that would not have been any different if the mystery of Golgotha had never happened. In the course of Earth's development, the natural sciences will never reach the point where, based on the premises of physics or biology, for example, scientists will accept the mystery of Golgotha. Instead, all sciences, concerning themselves with what is happening in our world between birth and death, 
will eventually become more and more like the natural sciences. Thus we need spiritual science so we can draw upon the spiritual realm. The question now is how we can have not just a science of the spirit but a way to be really immersed in the spiritual realm so that our questioning and seeking will not always lead us back to earthly nature for we will never find the Christ impulse in nature. So how can we go beyond knowing about the spiritual realm to actually placing ourselves within it? As you can tell from what I have said so far, we will need a certain consciousness, one that is different from our merely natural awareness, our awareness of natural facts, and is added to it. Developing this different consciousness will become increasingly important as more and more people adopt the mindset of the natural sciences as their own. For this other consciousness, grasping the mystery of Golgotha as a spiritual fact, will be the pinnacle of achievement, and this necessary spiritual understanding of the mystery of Golgotha will then have to be extended to all of life. Everything will have to be seen as essentially spiritual. In other words, we must add a new way of seeing things to our approach, focused purely on the natural world. This new way of seeing things, which must inevitably develop, will arise as we look at our destiny in the world, on both a large and small scale, with as much focused awareness as we employ when perceiving the physical world around us with our senses. What I mean by this is that now, most people pay hardly any attention to the course of their destiny. But to realize how important that is, just look at some very unusual cases. Let me tell you about one such case to illustrate what I mean. This is just one case of thousands like it. Indeed, I could tell you about thousands and thousands of similar cases. For example, a man goes out for a walk on a familiar path a path that takes him up a hill to a rocky plateau from where he has a beautiful view. He has often come here before to enjoy the view. We could say this walk has become a habit. Now one day as he is walking along on his, uh, this path, out of the blue the thought comes to him, careful, look out. In his mind, not in uh, an hallucination, but in his mind inwardly, he hears a voice asking, Why do you walk on this path? Just once could you not consider your own enjoyment paramount? That is what he hears in his mind, and it makes him think. Deep in thought, he steps a bit to the side. And at precisely that moment, a huge boulder comes crashing down and lands where he would have been standing if he had not stepped aside. The boulder would surely have struck him dead. Now, Please think about what happened there as far as destiny is concerned. And something happened, didn't it? The man does not die, but goes on living. Many people's lives are connected with his, and all those lives would have changed if the boulder had crushed this man. So something has come to pass there. But if you try to explain what happened there on the basis of natural laws, you will inevitably miss what is fateful in this accident, excuse me, in this incident. Of course, with the help of natural laws, 
You can explain why the boulder came loose and why it would have struck the person dead, and so on and so forth. But whatever insights you can arrive at in this way will not tell you anything about destiny. They have nothing to do with destiny. Now this is an extreme case, but my dear friends, our whole life is made up of such things insofar as it is destiny. Alas, we usually don't pay any attention to it. Most people, indeed, don't pay as much attention to these things as they do to what their senses offer them as facts. Every day, every hour, every moment, things happen of which I've just now told you an unusual example. Just think, for example, of how often you're getting ready to go out, but are delayed by something or other, perhaps for half an hour or so. And we really have to look at these things, even at the seemingly most banal and insignificant that happen thousands of times in our lives. In our example, you only see what happens because you have been delayed for half an hour. Usually you don't think of what would have been different if you had been able to leave half an hour earlier. This is how a completely different realm continuously works on our lives namely the realm of destiny. Most of us don't notice this realm and its effects because we are focusing exclusively on what is happening in our lives right now, what is under our noses, so to speak. We don't consider what is continuously being kept out of our lives, what we are spared. For all you know, you could have done something, say, three hours ago, that would ultimately have kept you from sitting here in this room now, something that might even have cost you your life. But it was kept out of your life, and you were spared. And that is why you can be here now, but all you see is what did happen, and thus has already required numerous spiritual impulses in order to come to pass at all. Usually most of us don't think about what we do in our life as the result of spiritual impulses cooperating with us. However, once we become aware of this and realize that there is a realm of destiny just as real as the natural world around us, we will find this sphere of destiny just as rich and varied as nature. But we can only perceive it clearly and plainly in special moments, in unusual cases such as the one I told you about. This realm of destiny, in the feelings and will impulses interwoven with our destiny, is where the impulses of the dead are at work. Saying this will still get us labeled as superstitious fools by the leading lights of the day. Nevertheless, it is true that we can say with as much certainty and precision as if we were pronouncing a natural law that a voice spoke to the man I mentioned, and that this was the voice of this or that dead soul who spoke to him at the behest of some hierarchies. This is how the impulses of the dead and of the hierarchies are continuously at work in us, weaving our destiny from morning to night, and especially from night until morning during our sleep. Now, I want to draw your attention particularly to the issue of the Socratic daimon. As you probably already know, Socrates, the Greek sage, explained that in everything he did 
he acted under the influence of a daimon. I have discussed this Socratic daimon in my small book titled The Spiritual Guidance of the Individual and Humanity. The second chapter of my recent book titled Riddles of the Soul deals with the learned and scholarly fellow Max Dessoir and shows how, Ma- how Dessoir treats that topic. And I've spoken there also about the daimon of Socrates. Basically, Socrates was aware of something that has been at work in all people, even though most have generally not noticed it. Up to the time of the mystery of Golgotha, certain beings controlled the activity of the dead in human life. At the time of the mystery of Golgotha, these beings lost their power and the Christ impulse took their place. That is why there is a connection revealed by spiritual science between the Christ impulse and human destiny. The forces and impulses of the dead are at work in our feelings and will as I have described it. At the same time the dead also experience, alternately, a strengthening and weakening of their will. The sphere of their activity is an earthly realm, just as much as nature is. And since the time of the mystery of Golgotha, the impulse living in it is that of Christ. That is, Christ is the guiding force in this realm I've described. Consequently, in the future, we need not only a proper spiritual scientific understanding of the mystery of Golgotha, But we also need to realize that both the world of natural facts and its opposite pole, the realm of destiny, permeate our lives. So far, people have rarely paid any attention to this realm of destiny. But eventually we must become as aware of it as we are of the natural world. And then we will realize that we are connected with the dead in this realm of destiny which also contains within it the kingdom of Christ. In the mystery of Golgotha, Christ descended to earth to be active here, to share with us what we have in common with the dead, as long as they are still working in our earthly sphere. And here I am talking about what normally happens, not any exceptional case. Now, excuse me, Now, we should not take this as just an abstract truth, as a mere concept, or as a commonplace to be trotted out occasionally when we vaguely remember that it is true. Rather, thanks to this knowledge, we should feel as much at home and as much aware of everything in this sphere of destiny as we are in the natural world around us. Once we feel ourselves as much part of that sphere as we are of the world we see with our physical eyes, and thus become aware of the working together of the forces of Christ and of the dead, we can truly, concretely and sensitively live with the dead. This is what we can then finally develop, my dear friends. And then as we experience, or do this or that, we will realize that we are untied in it with our dear departed This will enrich our lives immeasurably. I believe that word is not untied but united. Let me read that sentence again. 
This is what we can then finally develop, my dear friends. And then as we experience or do this or that, we will realize that we are united in it with our dear departed. This will enrich our lives immeasurably. Although we say we remember the dead, we do not have a truly intense life or connection with them. Such an intense life, one that will be a true and real life, because we are no longer sleeping through it and through our destiny, will only be possible once we go beyond remembering the dead to really knowing that when we do this or that, when we are successful in our endeavors, it is because the dead have been working with us. You see, the bonds uniting us with the dead are not dissolved, but remain, and in the future will tremendously enrich our life on earth. The fifth post-Atlantean epoch, which is the one we are currently living in, is devoted primarily to educating humanity in the direction I have outlined just now. In fact, humanity will not be able to survive the sixth post-Atlantean epoch unless we all learn to feel these things in the right way and to integrate the reality of destiny into our awareness in the same way we now perceive the reality of the natural world. What I wanted to emphasize today is that we must realize the connection between the mystery of Golgotha and the problem of death in concrete terms, because this is also intimately connected with what all people must now become aware of. So far, among many other things, we have lost the ability to experience true realities in our impulses of feeling and willing, and have instead allowed ourselves to be lulled by the greatest illusion of all, namely the belief that we can shape life on earth on the basis of earthly laws. We see the extreme expression of this illusion in pure materialistic socialism, which will, of course, never accept that the dead play a role in even the smallest of our human actions. Instead, it insists on seeing everything as determined by the laws of economics and physics. But that is only one extreme form. There is another opposite extreme, the one all sorts of idealists are now dreaming of. In utter disregard of spiritual aspects, their utopian dream is to create purely programmatic international organizations worldwide supposedly to eliminate war once and for all. Of course, once people have fallen for this illusion, they will soon realize that rather than eliminating war, it will actually bring about the very thing it was intended to do away with. True, there is much goodwill and sincerity involved here, and such utopian dreams are an inevitable outgrowth of the materialist spirit of our age. In a sense, they are its extreme political expression and will ultimately bring about the very conditions they intend to abolish. What we need instead is for an understanding of the workings of destiny to spread over the whole world and also take hold of legislatures and political organizations forming the basic structures of our social conditions. In fact, everything that does not go along with the necessary spiritual development of humanity I've outlined here will simply dissolve. It will decline and deteriorate. 
That is why it is extremely important to properly understand the signs of our times. To put it bluntly, we don't have to make politics here and will not do that. Let me try that again. To put it bluntly, we don't have to make politics here and will not do that. Nevertheless, if we want to focus on humanity's spiritual development, we must see clearly that our epoch, what our epoch, demands of us. In particular, we must understand that the paths most of us follow these days will lead only to losing Christ, not to finding Him. We can find Christ, the only true King and Lord of the earth, only by raising ourselves to spirituality. You can be sure that these days the various religious denominations are seeking Christ in vain. Among other things, they have entered into some rather strange compromises in their view of Christ, to the point, here and there, of even worshipping Him as a God of war. But you can also be sure that we can find Christ if we seek Him where He can be found in His reality, namely by understanding the realm of destiny as a reality. Then an international organization will be created, and as a result true Christianity will be spread all over the globe. Of course, you know that we've not come close to reaching this goal yet. Think of all the people who want to establish world peace, and, and who doesn't, and who have developed this or that program for that purpose. What would they say if you offered a program of making Christ accessible to all of humanity as a way to bring about lasting peace, insofar as that can be achieved at all here on earth? Imagine what the various associations based on goodwill would say if you were to present such a proposal to them. As we know, even the Pope, the vicar of Christ on earth, has offered a program for peace, but you will not read much about Christ in that program. These issues are not taken seriously nowadays. That is why people cannot find a path to salvation. We must understand the mystery of Golgotha in spiritual terms. But it is also crucial that we correctly read the signs of the times and then see spiritual science as indispensable for shaping our social future. I will have to talk about these things even in tomorrow's public lecture, but in somewhat different terms. This is what I wanted to add to the earlier reflections regarding our life with the dead. Before closing, I'd like to repeat a comment of mine, even though it is highly distasteful to me to have to do so. I've mentioned this before in other branches of our society, and most of you, my dear friends, already know this. However, for the sake of completeness, I need to repeat it here. I don't know if you have heard some of the utterly incredible and slanderous things said about our society, things so nasty that one can only wonder about the minds thinking them up. Of course, we must protect spiritual science from such vicious, nasty slander, for that's what this really is. That is why we will have to suspend our usual private talks for some time, while at the same time continuing to do everything we can in support of the spiritual development our friends seek. This has become necessary because the slanderous comments I mentioned have been compiled from precisely such private talks. Therefore, I have to ask you, my dear friends, to please understand 
that, that for the time being no such private talks can take place. However, it would be telling only half the story if we said only that much. I must also add that those who want to, of course only those who want to, are free to talk about absolutely everything that has ever been said or has ever happened in those private meetings. In our spiritual movement we have nothing to hide as long as people are telling the truth. I've been compelled to take these steps for the protection of our society, whether I want to or not. Please bear with me and be patient. We will find other ways and means to make sure that everyone receives due spiritual attention. But first and foremost, spiritual science must not be hindered by such things that essentially have nothing to do with it. That is why I am asking especially our long-time loyal and honest members to please understand that our usual private talks will have to be suspended for now and that I therefore release everyone from any promises made in this connection. As far as I am concerned, those who want to, of course they don't have to, can share whatever they wish with anybody, but there is nothing here that must be kept secret as long as it is presented truthfully and honestly. To make sure of that, we must adopt the above two provisions. I am very sorry to have to make this announcement, but I know that especially those of our friends who are closest to our movement will realize that this is necessary and will understand. Above all, we must realize how serious our situation is. That is why a meeting such as this one is always a special and particularly solemn occasion for me. Especially now in the midst of the current catastrophe, I want us to be thoroughly steeped in the understanding of how essential it is that we stick together in the sense of our anthroposophical motto of being linked together in spirit. Even though we will have to be physically apart for a time now, we will remain connected in spirit. This is the best farewell wish I can offer you at the end of our time together here today, perhaps for some time to come. We will be together only in spirit. The end of Lecture 1